Welcome to the Evidence to Impact podcast, the podcast that brings together academic researchers, government partners, and others outside of academia to talk about research insights and real-world policy solutions in Pennsylvania and beyond. Hello, I'm Michael Donovan, Associate Director of the Evidence to Impact Collaborative at Penn State. Thank you for joining us for part two of a conversation with Commissioner Mike Pipe and Professor Chris Whitco, where we discuss the November election and vaccine distribution efforts, among other topics. Mike serves as the chair of the Center County Board of Commissioners and co-chair of the election board. And Chris is the associate director of the School of Public Policy and professor of public policy and political science at Penn State University. I'd love to, to pivot a little bit here. Um, now that we are um, currently in the beginnings of, of December, uh, about a month past uh, the November uh, elections, um, I'd love to discuss, Mike, a little bit more uh, of your role as the uh, co-chair of elections here in Center County um, and, and you know, a little bit of our, our really uh, sacred responsibility to uh, maintain the integrity of our elections amid a remarkably challenging time. Um, so I'd like to hear what it's like to, um, to really design and uh, execute um, a remarkable mail-in ballot system for Center County, which, which was quite successful in, in, in real number of, of growth, um, and also uh, just a general election um, in terms of polling locations, um, all, all the remarkable changes that had to be, had to be taken in um, as a result of the pandemic. What, what is that experience like for you? The Board of Elections here in Center County, which I'm a part of, uh, is, is made up of, of the three commissioners. We have a fantastic staff that exists in, in the elections office and has been doing it for decades. And in addition, due to certain funds that we got from the state and nonprofits as well, we were able to expand out and hire a lot of temporary workers to make sure that this general election happened. Uh, either if people wanted to vote in person on election day, if they wanted to cast their ballot through a mail-in using the USPS or a Dropbox, or if they wanted to vote early, and we worked with the Penn State at the Bryce Jordan Center to set up a really robust early voting location that was well uh, used and heavily used by, by uh, many, many voters here in Center County. Um, I think we were very blessed to have a primary election that was actually one of the ones that was delayed by five weeks. So we were prepared to do an election in April, uh, in late April, uh, but the state passed legislation nearly unanimously, hugely bipartisan to delay it by five weeks to give our community some time to prepare and get some things in place in terms of proper protocols, proper PPE, uh, making sure that we understood the fact that most people who, who work on election day as poll workers are in the vulnerable category when it comes to COVID-19. So we really had to take, you know, maybe five additional weeks to just reformat. Uh, we were able to recruit more poll workers. Uh, we were able to consolidate a few precincts here in Center County due to the fact that some of our polling, I mean, this is never going to ever happen again, but in 2019, we had polling locations were, that were at nursing homes, that were at senior living facilities. I don't think that's ever going to happen again. That, that will never, I, I cannot see another nursing home saying, sure, come on in, let's bring people in, just because of what we know about um, how viruses carry and uh, the precautions that need to be taken. So we needed to make, make some adjustments. We needed to make sure that we had uh, in-person voting locations for every uh, citizen here in Center County. Out of that knowledge and the work that was done in the primary, we were able to really just completely augment and stretch out a lot of the things that were happening 
uh, in, uh, uh, you know, in, in Center County during the primary, but get ready for the general. And now hindsight's 2020, we had the largest turnout ever in terms of a number of voters coming out to vote in Center County. And that was in addition to the fact, or, or we should appreciate the fact that Penn State students, some of them voted, but not nearly the amount that we've seen in previous elections here in Center County. So the fact that we didn't have a large participation from students, uh, who, and of course the pandemic you know, made it very difficult for them to vote here, or they decided to vote home. They weren't sure if they knew they were going to be here in November due to the mask up or pack up campaign here at Penn State, but there were so many different things and it all culminated in essentially about a thousand volunteers working at polling locations on election day, uh, getting training ahead of time on that, helping to set up the locations with, with proper protocols in place, sneeze guards, gloves, uh, disinfectant, you name it, and also having the mail-in uh, vote count center happening at the Penn Stater uh, here in Center County. About a thousand people came out and said, yes, we wanna make this election run. It was quite phenomenal. Uh, but we're again, that's going to, this conversation about mail-in voting is going to be a lingering conversation going into future years just because of the fact that it was the first time it occurred. There's some differences of, of, uh, in Pennsylvania in a, in a large way, and there's dis differences of opinion about how it was handled. Uh, so it should be a very interesting um, discussion as we go forward. But I do think that every, every community within the whole country did a phenomenal job pulling off this election in the midst of a pandemic midst of a very heated presidential campaign, uh, but it really strengthened, I think, a lot of people's resolve in the, the, the American democracy, and it was fantastic to see. But whether people voted again uh, by mail from their home, uh, early voted or voted in person, it was tr tremendous to see the kind of turnout we did across the country. I think it's we're setting a record for the total amount of votes of either candidate uh, uh, in the presidential election by tens of millions. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable to see the country come out and vote in such a large way. But again, as a, as a constituent, thank you so much for, for putting in such a, a, a strong uh, process. Uh, Chris, from your perspective as a political scientist, what does this election um, spell? And not in terms of the outcome necessarily, but in terms of the process. I really think about um, what, the, what the future um, repercussions of, of expanding um, vote by mail in various states um, and how local and state governments have really risen to uh, remarkable challenges here. So if you could just discuss that, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, they've, uh, I agree with you. And I want to also say kudos to Mike uh, for his work and, and others around the state and around the nation in his types of positions that really made this work with incredible effort and dedication. We all owe him a debt of gratitude. Um, I think there's a lot of positives that come out of this in terms of the process. I mean, Mike mentioned that they got all these different volunteers to act as poll workers. Well, that's a good that's good news. If you get younger people in the habit of being poll workers when they're young, it pro probably a good number of them are going to continue to do that in the future. And uh, it's been a problem getting younger folks into that role for a number of elections. So that's a, a real positive thing, I think. You know, in terms of some of the innovation around ballots, like vote by mail has expanded in a lot of places. And in some places that will stay, uh, you know, I, and I hope it does because it's obviously much more convenient. We've had incredible engagement and turnout, as Mike said, we've had higher turnout uh, in this election as a percentage of the population than any election for like a hundred years based on what I saw. Um, so, so that's been really good. The, the levels of engagement 
a lot of experimentation with different types of voting. And we need to, I mean, as a country, I, I personally just think obviously we're better off if it's easier to vote. It's an important thing to do. And we shouldn't be putting barriers and hurdles in front of people who want to have their voice heard. That's what democracy is all about. And America historically it makes it extremely difficult to vote compared to other countries, other democracies. So hopefully we're going to lower these barriers. And some states have had vote by mail for a long time or no excuse absentee ballots uh, for a long time. Um, and, and a lot of places will probably move in that direction, but a lot of places won't. Like so in Georgia, they expanded a lot of this innovation and we're already seeing a lot of pushback against it. You know, it's a red state. And um, even the Secretary of State, Raffensperger, who's been who's been really good in a lot of ways in ensuring a, a, a good vote count and all that is is kind of I think I saw a story the other day that he's in favor of some more restrictions on on, on vote by mail and making it easier to vote. And of course, it's been quite controversial in Pennsylvania, even though the initial vote by mail, um, the loosening of the voting restrictions was was supported widely by Republicans and Democrats. Um, you know, there was some chicanery, I guess you might say, in the in the uh, legislature about getting those votes, uh, vote those mail-in ballots and those absentee ballots counted early, right? The Republicans didn't go along with the plan that Wolf and the Democrats wanted to have to allow those to start to be counted before Election Day. And and that um, caused a lot of issues, not actually any real issues, but perceptual issues and issues where a cynical politician could exploit the fact that it looked like Trump was way ahead in Pennsylvania, when in fact it was completely illusory just based on the vote counting procedures. But you're going to see pushback against some of this stuff in in red states for sure, and even states for like Pennsylvania, which are more purple, but which have a uh, a Republican legislature. So I think that's so I think you know in a, in a lot of, in some ways this has been a really heartwarming election when you see the engagement, but in other ways it's quite scary that you see people really willing to undermine people's faith in democracy for their own cynical purposes. And unfortunately, we've seen more of that than I've, I've ever seen in my life. I mean, Biden won by a, obviously a large margin and uh, wasn't even particularly close. And, and you just have people questioning the legitimacy of the election and, and in the process questioning the legitimacy of, of all the officials, partisan, nonpartisan, that made this election go off really without a hitch. Not only is there no evidence of widespread uh, corruption or anything like that, there's really no evidence of even small scale corruption that we've seen. Mike, did you have a point to make? I did. I, I, I wanted to piggyback on something that Chris was saying, and I think it's important, which is there is going to be, I mean, we already have in Pennsylvania, legislation, even though the legislative session ends in, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, at the end of the year, there's already legislation been proposed to eliminate <laughs> vote by mail validity. And it's, it's, it's not even, they're not, um, it, it is, uh, so it is really, it's become very political. Whenever you make voting political, which maybe that's, maybe that, that is what it is. It is a challenge. I will say though, that election officials 
need to recognize, and myself included, that this was the first time that mail-in voting was done in such a large way in Pennsylvania, and we should be open to maybe some improvements or changes within the process. I do think that when you look at the way that specifically how the vote by mail counting was done, the legislation or the opening of the mail-in ballots, the legislation was so vague. It was just a, basically a paragraph about how that's done. And in other states, they had a little bit more of a work through on how it looks, how it works. Again, as Chris mentioned, giving more time for the workers to do it prior to the opening of the polls on Election Day. And so it would really be phenomenal if we could get some, I would say, improvements and some more um, ability for there to be clarity in terms of some of the, the, uh, the things that we didn't really see that were happening uh, uh, or, or I guess weren't in place uh, in, in here in Pennsylvania. And again, I think it was, you're seeing a lot of court cases filed here in Pennsylvania. And so I think as the legislature realizes, you know what, we really didn't think through all the things that could happen. I think we actually get a better pace, piece of legislation. Uh, it's a phrase that we're familiar with where it's, um, you know, improve, not replace. Uh, and so I think that there's a, there's a, a real potential for to improve a lot of that. Again, much like with a lot of the stay at home orders and other things that occurred with the pandemic, I think we can learn from how we did things and, and make improvements in the future. And Mike, that really gets at uh, what many um, in the public policy world would, would view as a traditional role of our, our local and state governments to serve as the laboratories to kind of move forward the needle and, and the, the, the state of the field. Um, and obviously there'll be, there'll be piecemeal um, progress uh, and steps backward in, in various ways over time. Uh, as as uh, states approach it differently, uh, based on their their polities, of course, um, I'd love to discuss a little bit um, a, a remarkably important uh, topic of the day, um, and how it it intersects uh, these two communities really closely, uh, and that would be the upcoming uh, vaccine distribution uh, for uh, COVID nineteen, whether it be. Uh, the Moderna or Pfizer or the variety of others that uh, will um, hopefully be coming. Uh, more readily available um, and released in a, a tiered approach to uh, healthcare and, and more susceptible uh, communities um, on down to to those without uh, pre-existing conditions that that um, reduce their their immune response. Um, I really see this as a as an intersection of a remarkable moment in time where we are we're lifting up uh, state and local governments as uh, remarkably important to our uh, strength of our, our, our economy, our uh, government, um, and just the general um, lifeblood of, of America. Um, at the same time, lifting up really science and data-based um, solutions, evidence-based solutions. Um, this is uh, a time where there is uh, very um, heated discussions of the um, integration of, of biomedical uh, evidence, management science and logistics will be coming into this, uh, social sciences and public policy. It's really a wonderful kind of integration moment that, that we have an opportunity in front of us. Um, and of course, at, at, at core to this is really how do we um, uh, have an environment where there's the most equitable and timely distribution of uh, vaccines to various uh, populations um, and that raises some of the many, many of the same issues um, that came up as the initial the initial pandemic, rather. Um, so if we can, this can kind of be for anyone, but uh, could we discuss some of the challenges of, of really setting up vaccine distribution at a local and state level? What roles uh, Center County will have in this? 
um, and, and what this means kind of as an integration moment for a lot of these disciplines. Sure, I'd be happy to jump in, Michael, and talk a little bit about how the state of Pennsylvania is going about this. So in October of 2020, they put out an executive summary of some of their sort of main uh, guide rails when it came to vaccine distribution, who would be responsible for it, timeline, um, the process, who would be making the decisions. And so that was a helpful document that was put out there in terms of um, just appreciating and understanding what that what, what the role of, of the states would be looking like. As we know, each of the 50 governors will really have the ability to d decide uh, who will get the vaccine first, what that will look like. And many governors have they essentially taken the CDC recommendations and, and have said, we're, just, we're gonna go with that. So here locally in Center County, we will be working very closely with the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency to receive the vaccines, identify the entities that would be uh, distributing the vaccines, doing the vaccines. Uh, but I think our, our main uh, focus is going to be for the individuals that are in the public, so to speak, not in nursing homes, not in correctional facilities, uh, but when the general public will be able to be uh, um, get the vaccine, that is going to be a challenge because we're essentially going to be saying who gets the, or how do we get the vaccines? And so um, there's going to have to be identifying protocols in place for that. I mean, people are going to be very interested in getting this vaccine. And um, so we have to be very, very strategic about how we do it. And so, you know, we have to be mindful about security. We have to be mindful about personal data. Uh, when we're taking this into a place. So, so as you said, put it very well, it really is the intersection of, of almost everything that's occurring right now in our, in our communities and in in discussions related to health policy, security, um, you know, the pandemic, uh, getting back to life as it was. And so uh, we be, need to be very mindful of it. I do think you're seeing right now, there is being a little bit of a, a, a breadcrumb trail or, or, or a longer runway being done right now about the safety of the vaccine. You just saw um, the three former presidents, uh, President um, uh, George W. Bush, uh, President Clinton, and President Obama, saying that they would go on camera to take the vaccine. You know, it's important not to not to politicize the vaccine, but it is important to have individuals from both sides of the aisle, community members. Um, I would think that you know, religious leaders, uh, leaders of nonprofits and communities, those would be the ones that, if you see them coming out and saying it's safe to take the vaccine, please join me in taking the vaccine. Uh, that would be really phenomenal. But I do think as counties, we are we are being tasked with helping to distribute the vaccine. And so it will be something that we're focusing on uh, in the coming months ahead for sure. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear, Mike, from somebody really on the ground at the front lines. Um, I think a, a big picture to all this is, I guess, Pennsylvania as a state is is pretty well positioned bureaucratically in terms of having a pretty good public health apparatus at the state level and things like that it does vary by county like mike said some of the rural counties don't even have a public health department and in fact delaware county where i live didn't have a public health department until very recently and a neighboring county is actually handling the coronavirus response because those things aren't up and running even here, which is a pretty, you know, it's got hundreds of thousands of people in it. Um, but but Pennsylvania overall, and for a rural county in Pennsylvania, or a rural-ish county, I guess you might say, Center County is going to be pretty well positioned because of the tax base there and the types of folks that live there with good education and, and things like that. It might not be the same in, a, in every rural county in Pennsylvania. 
and there's going to be a lot of variation uh, across different states. You know, Pennsylvania's in a much better situation than other states. We could probably think of pretty quickly that have really not had the level of investment in, you know, public health infrastructure and stuff like that. My colleague Simon Heider has has written about how we've just disinvested in general in public health over the last several decades in the United States, just the basic public health. And so we saw that with the inability to successfully contact trace and, and just do basic things like that. A lack of resources, of course, is also a huge problem. The states and localities are getting hit by declining tax revenue due to the, the decline in commerce. So we really do need the federal government to pay for some of this stuff. You know, there's gonna need to be additional people hired to distribute these vaccines. There's gonna need to be public health campaigns at local levels, state levels. There's gonna need to be lots of spending that's gonna have to happen in a time when states and localities don't have it. So we do need the federal government to step up and provide some money for that. It looks like basically this week, there were some discussions heading in that direction between McConnell and Pelosi and a group of senators, Mitt Romney, Joe Manchin, Susan Collins, and some others, you know, got together and, and kind of made this a point that we need to get that going. So that's good. So hopefully that can happen and that the bill that's being talked talk about, there's a lot of money in there for vaccine distribution. So we do need that. Um, it has been impressive to see how the states and localities have responded, adapted, kind of filled the gap that has been left by federal inaction, but really you, you, you do need the federal government here as a partner and uh, getting the, I mean, ideally the federal government would be leading these efforts in a coherent and uh, coordinated and competent manner. We don't have that at the moment, maybe we will, uh, but in any case, at a very minimum, we need the feds to cut, cut some checks. Um, it is gonna be an incredible logistical uh, you know, challenge to get this distributed. I think the last big, big campaign was probably the polio vaccine in, in the 50s, right? And if you go back to the 50s, you, you know, that was a time when America was walking on air. We were pretty good at doing big things, the D-Day invasion, you know, that sort of stuff. And people had a lot of confidence. Government was competent. We had just gone through the New Deal. And I'm not sure we're in the same place in terms of, uh, in terms of just basic blocking and tackling by our governments at this point. We, we Going into the pandemic, we thought we were the Pittsburgh Steelers, but we were shown to be the Philadelphia Eagles, I think, sad to say, <laughs> in terms of just being able to do the basic stuff that government has to do. And so we need to rapidly improve this or the rollout of the vaccine is going to be as much of a disaster as testing and contact tracing was last spring and in the summer and now. And I really think so core to this um, is is trust, um, trust in institutions, trust in uh, the actual vaccine process and the the uh, approval process, um, and and core to building trust and maintaining is is some of the persuasion and motivation that um, social science uh, has studied so much. So uh, it it's really shows a, a a vital integration point of so many different disciplines. Um, and an opportunity, really, uh, to, to utilize what we've learned from, from research uh, and other, other communities. Um, I, I would like to talk um, a little bit about 
um, kind of introspectively on, on both the, the state and the county level, um, what, what are some missed opportunities of the last 10 months, uh, eight months, uh, continuing in, in, into, the, into the future here? How can we actually, as, as time goes on, um, adapt and adjust? Uh, what things would we, would we be doing differently from, from each of your perspectives? Um, if anything comes to mind. I'll jump in first. I mean, I think we have seen um, the consequences of just basically a, a disinvestment in the public sphere, particularly in public health. I mean, um, you know, we've been living in kind of an era of permanent austerity for almost really for years, maybe almost decades at this point, where some of the basic stuff of government has just been cut to the bone. And, and we pay the price for that in uh, this spring and this summer, and we're continuing to pay a price for that. And even some things at the federal level haven't been functioning, you know, as well as we, we might have liked. Um, so I think, I think that's one thing. We really need to just kind of reevaluate our overall, our overall approach to government and, and particularly in this case, public health. I mean, we do need to have a little bit of slack in the system so that when these unexpected events happen, which will happen, there will be pandemics. We, we know this. There will be terrorist attacks in certain areas that kill a lot of people. There will be bad things that happen. And when you've just cut everything to the bone and there's not enough excess capacity there, that's a huge problem when these things happen. And we're a wealthy country. There's really no excuse for this. Uh, there's really no excuse to not be able to hire a bunch of contact tracers and get them to work quickly. There's really no excuse to not be able to rapidly roll out testing and things like that. So it's it's been, I, hope, I mean, I think it probably hasn't been, but it should have been a wake up call to everybody in this country that we really need to be serious about having a competent, functional, adequately staffed government that can keep its people safe and healthy. I mean, that's one thing that I would hope would come out of that. From a local level, I think one of the challenges that Pennsylvania will have going forward will be to appreciate if, if and, I, and I'm already hearing it already, which was, you know, the last pandemic we had was 100 years ago. We'll let the, you know, in 100 years from now, we'll, we'll let that governor and those commissioners uh, figure it out at this point. And uh, the point is, you know, you know, that's, a, that's not appreciating history. There have been other pandemics that have occurred. They've just not been as severe or as drastic or they've been more localized. And um, it, it's it's something that needs to be taken into account uh, when it when you know I don't know how and at what point, uh, but we need to appreciate that this is something that could happen again and it could happen in in a in a sooner fashion than many of us think. The uh, the discussion I think for county governments will be do they or do they not create ha county health departments, and I think that there is a uh, there will be a robust discussion about that. I think it'll trend more towards. The state needs to put some more resources out there or the federal government has to help states reach local rural communities that do not have the, 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 the funding to put uh, health, uh, county health departments in place. Prior to the pandemic, I think we maybe had one or two people that were regional for the whole region. Uh, it could have been more, uh, but in terms of uh, trying to piece together what their staffing looked like, it wasn't many. But going forward, that may, might change because the, the key thing that we've taken, at least I've taken out from this whole thing, many others have as well, has been the relationships that the county health departments had in place 
prior to the pandemic allowed them to succeed. You just can't get a county health department up and running in a few months. Um, you might have the technical aspects there, but you don't have the relationships. And that's built over many, many years uh, with doing, you know, um, promoting vaccines for kids, uh, doing research or, or outreach on many other issues. So that's going to be something that county governments in Pennsylvania at least are going to be talking about going forward. How can the DOH uh, be more responsive to us? I think also when it comes to future stay-at-home orders or future, uh, you know, uh, virtual learning for students, um, I think county governments and school districts have been put into a very awkward position where there is a very, very vocal minority that do not want either of those things to happen. School sh schools closed, or I should say uh, remote learning uh, or business to be closed. Um, and But the research and the data goes more towards the, if you want to have less deaths, less, less cases, less infection, you do want to limit those as much as possible. But now, again, we're, we're learning the research that's coming out saying that there have been um, whole classes of students in certain school districts that went virtual that are going to all fail. I mean, they're all failing in every category. And so uh, there has to be a conversation about, you know, if we're, if we're going to do this virtual learning, what kind of things do we put in place? Or um, do we just send kids home and just say, you're not going to learn at all because there's no, there's no, there's no research that shows that it's going to be beneficial. So do we do even more worse damage uh, if students are, are quote unquote virtual learning? So these all, and again, it's, it's going to get political. That's what happens. Um, but I think that as long as we have a local, state, and, and with this new incoming administration, we have, we have leaders that are willing to look at the research and the data and make informed decisions going forward. I think that is important. Uh, but, but as I said earlier with another question, you know, this, this, the, the post-pandemic, um, you know, if, we, if we ever can truly get to that point, I think we will, it will be a lot of rehashing. It will be a lot of uh, you know, uh, finger pointing, but as much as we can look at the data, make strategic uh, decisions and have good leadership, I think we'll be in a better place. Yeah, if I could just add, I mean, I think those are really good points. Some of these, some of these questions are hard, right? So pointing fingers is not really appropriate. I mean, whether to close schools and make them virtual is a, is a difficult decision because, you know, there's, it's just, it's not clear what, what's the best call because there's real costs to kids not being in school, but there are some costs to kids being in school and, and obviously exposing teachers and maybe bringing the virus home to parents or a lot of kids live with their grandparents or elderly relatives and, and things like that. So that's just not an easy choice. Um, and and there's you can justify really decisions in different in different directions, you know. Um, but there's there's things there's other things that are just clear that we need to be doing and I appreciated Mike's point about you can't just stand up a public health department in, in a week or, or two. That that needs to be there. That that capacity, that governing capacity needs to be there all the time. And if people think we're not going to have another pandemic for 100 years, I mean, maybe we'll get lucky and, and, and that'll happen. But um, that's not consistent with what I'm reading from scientists who study this sort of thing. Um, so we, we do need to have that capacity in place. And frankly, we're a wealthy nation. There's really no reason why we, we don't have that capacity in place. Thank you. Yes, I, I have one uh, final question here uh, before I'll, I'll give each of you the, the opportunity to uh, present some closing remarks, just kind of a summary of our whole conversation. There's a, a lot to cover. Um, but at, as you both here represent 
kind of two communities, uh, one being um, from the policymaking and, and kind of practitioner uh, orientation and, and Commissioner Pipe here, and then uh, Chris from, from the academic and, and research community, public policy and political scientist uh, environment. Um, how can we better uh, integrate these communities? How can we learn from each other um, and, and try to um, continue to expand this, uh, this relationship? Sure, I can. I, I'd be happy to jump in, and I think that uh, it would. Uh, so I, I love data. I love research. I love the history of how we got here and how we can do better in the future. Um, I will say, not every commissioner is like that, and there are times when my perspective of let's do a lot of, you know, policy, let's get heavy with that, let's really do the research is good. There are other times where it's not. You just we need to go forward. You need to make a decision, and it's it, it you know as they say the gut. But you need to make a decision and go forward. We don't have time to look at it. Right now, as we have, we're a precarious position when it comes to government at every level. Uh, it would be very good to stop and say, let's get more research policy and discussion going on and let's merge these a little bit more. And any, any elected official that doesn't, as Chris said earlier, look at the thousands of research documents or how did we do this? You know, the, the postmortem of how do we do this? Um, you know, these, these local... Um, stay-at-home orders, uh, you know, I mean, how, however you want to look at them, but if we don't, and there's, there's uh, kernels of truth in, in, in those that we can take for other decisions that we're making, uh, but if we just sort of say, that eh, that was that, uh, and I don't think Center County will, but I have heard other commissioners and other elected officials saying, it's not going to have any bearing on how I go forward, and I, I just think that's a, a tremendous, um, you know, disservice to what the country just went through and what our communities have gone through, but I think it's, um, it, but so it's, I think on the elected official side, it has to be when the research comes out, look at it, study it, uh, and, and understand it. I will give kudos to the rural, rural policy group that's out of the um, uh, Pennsylvania General Assembly. And they will put out good research when it comes to rural communities. And I know many commissioners like that because they're able to say, okay, I'm a rural community, I'm an elected official, I can put this to good use. Um, and I think from the flip side of things is we as county governments need to be more willing to share data, share our information, our perspectives on how, how we got to certain decisions, because I think that'll help the research and analysts and the policy um, you know, writers appreciate, okay, that's how elected officials think. That's how they, they get to where they're going. And that's how appointed, appointed um, civil servants get to where they're thinking as well and carrying out these things. So I think it has to be mutual. It has to be reciprocal. It has to be you know, a closed loop um, in these discussions. It's, you know, if there's a silver lining that comes out of this, it is the fact that that pr practitioners, the, the the elected officials, and then the, the policy um, wonks and the folks who, who research this, we should be talking. We should have more conversations going forward. So more forums, more more groups that are looking at these kind of things, I think, are, are certainly helpful. Yeah, I think. Um... It's obviously essential for academics to work with policymakers. Uh, that's kind of important to the mission of the School of Public Policy here at Penn State. I mean, we are a, a land grant institution, and so we are part of what we're supposed to be doing. I mean, really, most of what we're supposed to be doing is is serving the public in that way. And there's there can be problems with that, obviously. The way academics write and just some of the technical details and things like that aren't going to be, um, you know, easily consumed by policymakers who are very busy and often, you know, like most people just, they don't have PhDs in statistics and stuff. So they're not gonna understand the data analysis. So we need to do a good job of presenting those, those 
data and those findings in a way that, that policymakers can consume it. And there needs to be institutionalized channels to make that happen. And I think more now than ever, those channels are actually taking place. So, I mean, there are podcasts like, like the one you're doing, right? There's your evidence to impact collaborative where we're actually, you're studying how do we, you know, how do we get our scientific findings to actually be consumed by policymakers? So there's actually rigorous study of this question happening so that we can improve what we're doing. And, uh, you know, in the School of Public Policy, we have a Master's of Public Policy program where we're trying to train people to go into the public sector. And so to take some of this knowledge that academics have and put it to use, whether it be in terms of managing people or understanding how to do um, analyses to understand whether policies are working or not. Um, so I think I think there's a lot of opportunities now that didn't even exist 15 years ago when I or 20 years ago when I kind of first started getting out of grad school and started doing this kind of research. There's many more opportunities to share academic findings with policymakers. And I think there's been a pretty good uptake, at least on the public health side. Um, this has all happened so fast. It's like governments just couldn't keep up with the research demands. So there's been a lot of stuff coming out of universities, research groups, and it seems to me like like politicians and policymakers are pay, paying attention to at least the public health stuff. I think there's a lot of opportunities on the social and behavioral science side of things as the vaccines get rolled out and even in terms of mask usage for partnerships between scholars and policymakers, you know, what messages work when we want to get people vaccinated. This this is something that we could collaborate on. And uh, I'm certainly open to that, Mike, if you if, if you're uh, if you're potentially interested in that. But like, let's actually rigorously study which messages work. We have a big opportunity here to do this. And of course, we can find things out and use it for this particular vaccination campaign. But we can also use it. Obviously, there's been a growing anti-vaxxer movement if you will in the country and so that's going to be just general knowledge that's going to be useful and you know we're going to have another pandemic whether it's in hopefully i'm long gone by the time that happens but um i don't <laughs> I, I don't think it's gonna it's gonna you know these are going to happen more frequently based on what i'm reading so this knowledge will be be useful in the future so there's a lot of opportunities right within this current crisis to collaborate and and more generally um to do it and i think actually i i'm really happy that i think we're actually moving in that direction where there's more institutionalized ways of communicating findings with policymakers and hopefully and i'll just put this out there right now to anybody that's listening to this that might be a a policymaker in pennsylvania count whether at the county level state level you know, if you need anything, get get in touch with us at the School of Public Policy. If we have an expert who works in that area, we'll connect you, and we're we're happy to do what we can here. Excellent, thank you, Chris. And I, I do want to give uh, each of you the opportunity for for any closing closing remarks that uh, you you uh, haven't had a chance to say yet. Although that last question did some things up pretty well. Um, I don't know, uh, Mike or, or or Chris, either one. Uh, anything before we before we conclude our conversation today? No, I don't have uh, any op any uh, final comments or anything, but just uh, appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and speak and listen to somebody's uh, take who's who's out there on the front lines at the county level implementing and, and reacting to a lot of this stuff. So it's been really interesting and I appreciate it. 
I think likewise, Chris uh, offers uh, great perspectives and it's always helpful to, um, you know, I, as an alum of Penn State, you know, I always like to, to see the, uh, the folks who are doing the, the heavy lifting when it comes to the research. And so it was great to hear your perspective, Chris, and I appreciate uh, Michael and your team, uh, Melissa, putting this opportunity together. I think it's something that more uh, elected officials, if they would, you know, collaborate with these and listen to the conversations we're having, uh, will make them better public servants and in turn uh, help to make better communities. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you both. Uh, with that, I will uh, conclude our conversation. Um, again, this is Michael Donovan, uh, Associate Director of the Penn State Evidence Impact Collaborative. I'm joined here today uh, with Professor Chris Whitco, who's the Associate Director of the School of Public Policy and Professor of Public Policy and Political Science at Penn State University Park, and Mike Pipe, Center County Chair of the Board of Commissioners and Co-Chair of the Election Board uh, for Center County. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks to my guests. Again, I'm your host, Michael Donovan, the Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator and the Associate Director at the Evidence to Impact Collaborative. And this has been another episode of the Evidence to Impact podcast. Thanks for listening. 